transmission. Coal miners in one community, they've been on strike now for months. Working as long as 12 hours a day, seven days a week, in some of the most dangerous conditions. I really think that the labor movement is the single greatest force for democracy in the history of the United States. The story of Alabama is a story of not just resilience, but of militancy. I If we ain't all free, ain't none of us free. You're listening to Alabama's only union talk radio show, The Valley Labor Report, with Adam Keller and Jacob Morrison. Welcome back to Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison. My co-host is Adam Keller. Phone number is 844-899-8857. If you want to call in, get in on the conversation, 844-899-TVLR. You can also leave us a voicemail. We might respond to it on the air in the following week if you listen to it as a podcast. You can also send us a text message at the same number. Got some wild stuff going on in the chat, but uh, over on Facebook, appreciate Joe and Mel listening as always. Good morning, folks. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, wild conversations going on in the chat, but, uh, you know. Keep it coming. Keep it coming. Keep it coming. I don't even know exactly what to say in response to all of this. So I don't have super strong opinions about some of this stuff, but then others I do. I do, I do want to just for the record say uh, I'm not a fan of Koch brothers. Uh, I do not advocate for Are you Koch sure? brothers policy. <clears throat> I, I know that apparently there's this false dichotomy out there. Either you have to be a bigot who dislikes immigrants or you're a shill for the Koch brothers and mm. open borders. I was not aware that that, uh, that that was my only choice. I wasn't aware of that. Uh, but, hey, you learn okay. something new every day. Uh, yeah, you do. I, I saw That's it in true. a YouTube chat, so it must be true. There you go. There you go. Like and subscribe if you haven't yet, folks. <clears throat> like and subscribe uh, if you haven't yet. And uh, share with your friends. So let's talk about this um you want to talk about this uh, the the pre K stuff first, since we didn't get to that in the main show. Yeah, or the, you want to save that for when you talk about. Um, you know what? Maybe maybe this let's save that. Um, and there's been more to come out since uh, okay. actually in just the last couple of days. In fact, uh, so maybe we'll just do a little teaser here. Um, for those of you who did not hear, the state of Alabama has kind of gone to war with its pre-K department, it sounds like. Uh, Governor Kay Ivey has bounced out the head of the pre-K department, Dr. Barbara Cooper, uh, and it was primarily over a textbook that teachers were using, right? A teacher training textbook, just to be clear, not something that the children would ever see. Uh, but she, Governor Ivey claimed she received a complaint about so-called woke concepts in a book, you know, concepts like treating people with respect and dignity, uh, you know, controversial things like understanding that families may look different. And in fact, not every student you serve is going to have the same kind of family. Uh, you know, wild ideas like that. Uh, so we'll talk more about that uh, either next week or, or the week after that. Uh, 
you know, Teacher Appreciation Week's coming up, so we're going to have a lot more education focus over the next couple weeks. Uh, so we'll get into more details there. But I did want to lift up that uh, the reporting by Rebecca Griesbach with uh, AO.com. Um, in fact, she put out an article where uh, she looked at how they have cut pre-K equity resources since mm. this firing <clears throat> of Dr. Cooper. Uh, and I believe they reduced the use of the word equity by 90 percent uh, because even the word equity apparently is a right. little scary. Uh so yeah, it's just it's uh it's a shame to see, you know, more of this kind of culture war nonsense. Uh, you know, if only the folks who use the word woke could define that for us. Mm. Um, it's just become kind of a a catch-all term for anything that they don't like or anything that might, you know, indicate that folks deserve to be treated respectfully regardless of who they are sad so we'll talk more about it later on but uh just stay tuned to that story there's a lot happening there um you know governor ivy you know they woke her up yeah. and uh you know got her out of bed got her dressed got her to go fire someone so that that's what's happening with our governor uh so they can pour through the te- the textbooks of pre-k teachers and just uh, see if they can find anything that might indicate you should treat people decently. Yeah. Uh, some good news on the state grocery tax front, though, right? Yeah, yeah. There is some decent news, uh, I guess you could say. Um, Alabama Rise just put out a statement, uh, I believe yesterday, day before, perhaps. And uh, so Sen- Senator Andrew Jones, who is a Republican <clears throat> from uh, Center, Alabama, he has filed legislation this week to reduce Alabama's state sales tax on groceries. And the interesting thing about it is this bill, which is SB 257, is co-sponsored by all 35 state senators. So, I mean, that's kind of amazing in itself that literally all 35 state senators would agree to co-sponsor one single bill. Yeah. Alabama Rise Executive Director Robin Hyden released the following statement Friday in response. Alabama Rise is thrilled to see widespread bipartisan support from every senator for reducing the state sales tax on groceries. We support Senator Andrew Jones's legislation and appreciate the leadership that he and Rep. Penny McClammy have shown on this issue. It's time for lawmakers to seize this opportunity to untax groceries and improve life for every Alabamian. Reducing and ultimately eliminating the state grocery tax would make it easier for families to make ends meet. It would remove Alabama from the shameful list of three states with no tax break on groceries. It would also ban an important step. It would also be an important step toward righting the wrongs of our state's upside-down tax system. Alabamians with low and moderate incomes pay a higher share of their incomes in state and local taxes than the wealthiest households, and high sales taxes, particularly on food, are a major reason why. Quite simply, there are better ways for Alabama to raise revenue than taxing a necessity of life. It will be important, however, to ensure any grocery tax cut doesn't harm our children's education in the long term. The state grocery tax brings in more than $600 million a year for the Education Trust Fund. That's about 7% of this year's total ETF budget, making it a significant funding source for public schools. Revenues are likely strong enough for now to reduce the state grocery tax without causing severe harm to education funding, but history tells us that good economic times won't last forever. 
Lawmakers should use the coming months to identify and agree to a lasting solution to replace the state grocery tax. A rise is open to numerous ideas for replacement revenue. We continue to support Senator Marika Coleman's proposal to untax groceries and end the state income tax deduction for federal income tax payments. Alabama is the only state to allow this full deduction, which overwhelmingly benefits wealthy households. Closing this skewed loophole would protect funding from public schools and ensure Alabama can afford to end the state sales tax grocery, state sales tax on groceries forever. Alabama RISE members have advocated for decades to end the state grocery tax, and the people of Alabama strongly support this effort. The time for excuses and delays is over. It's time for our lawmakers to untax groceries. So that was from Robin Hyden, uh, executive director of Alabama Rise, which is a statewide member-led nonprofit organization advancing public policies to improve the lives of Alabamians who are marginalized by poverty. Uh, and Arise's membership includes faith-based community, nonprofit, and civic groups, grassroots leaders, and individuals from across Alabama. They have been doing a lot of hard work on this very issue of untaxing groceries. And, but I do appreciate that in Robin's statement, she made it clear that uh, we have to look out for education funding as well. Mm-hmm. And that has been one of the issues that has prevented the grocery tax cut from, from being implemented so far. Um, and frankly, it looks to me like there's not a lot of demand right now in the legislature to replace any of the revenue that they're cutting. Yeah, They're cutting revenue left and right, tax cuts left and right. Uh, tax cuts that are disproportionately not helping us working people. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, last year, you know, there were tens of millions of dollars uh, worth of cuts that were made that comes out of the Education Trust Fund. This year, there's a lot more that's being proposed and looks to go through. So uh, as we have said on this show numerous times, the grocery tax is just totally uncalled for. We shouldn't tax groceries and it disproportionately hurts poor people. Uh, But at the same time, we shouldn't cut education funding just to do that. And uh, I think it's important that we lift up all workers. And that's what bothers me is our politicians always give us these false choices that we have to hurt one group of workers to help another group of workers and vice versa. Uh, but what, what about not doing that? Right. What about not screwing over working people? Yeah. What about helping all working people better afford their groceries and protecting schools and educators and students? It seems like something we can do. It's something we should do. Uh, so there's good news on the grocery tax front. It does look like it's you know more likely than ever to, to be repealed. Uh, and that's good news for us working people. Uh, the not so good news is we're not sure if any of that money is going to be replaced for our schools. Uh, and so, you know, obviously that's a huge chunk and, you know, 7% mm-hmm. of the budget, that's people's jobs. Yeah. Uh, that's class sizes, that's resources available for students. Um, you know, that's, that's projects to fix the playground and paint the school and you name it. So, uh, it's a complicated issue. Happy to see movement on the grocery tax repeal, but you know I am as as a <clears throat> former educator, and I, I'm just very concerned about all these cuts that are that are happening to the education trust fund. You know, because there's more money than normal this year in the budget, 
uh, everybody's wanting to uh, just just cut left and right and, and take out taxes and uh, it's gonna it's gonna catch up with us it yeah. absolutely will and that's what worries me is that we have an austerity on the way and one of the things that is most disappointing um, and we mentioned this last time is that among the people who is giving this argument air that um, we don't need to replace the funding explicitly is the leader of the Democrats in the House, Anthony Daniels. He is just, uh, you know, giving credence to this argument that, oh, well, you know, maybe if we cut this uh, this this tax on groceries, then the money will just appear magically somehow, somewhere. Right. And the thing is, like, of course, there will be some stimulus effect. Uh but the idea that it will create enough taxable revenue to replace it seems just silly. Silly, and uh, worth noting on that front that Anthony Daniels' overtime tax cut bill is moving through the legislature. It got a favorable report. It it got a lot of praise from Republicans and Democrats, both calling it innovative and you know groundbreaking and all this. And and there again, like. I think it would be good to reduce the taxes on overtime pay. Um, if you work hard, you work enough hours and, and you're away from your family long enough to earn overtime pay, getting a little bit of a tax break on that would, would be nice. Right. But it's also millions and millions out of the education trust fund that will yeah. no longer appear. And again, that's you're, you're helping one set of workers, but what about all the workers who never make it to overtime? Right. Because they're working two or three jobs mm. to make ends meet, right? There's a lot of folks who are not allowed to get more than 40 hours at their job. Mm -hmm. That's a very common thing for workers to, to not be allowed to get overtime. So, yeah. And, and you know, the the idea like, some, you know, sometimes not every not every bill is going to be able to positively impact every single group of folks. And I understand that. And that's OK. But the the biggest thing for me is, the, the again, not replacing the revenue. Yeah. They like, leaned and, real and, hard <laughs> on the tax cut side of things. Yeah. And basically, and the idea said, that you couldn't like. Yes. Okay. Cut the tax for overtime pay, and let's replace that revenue uh, with a tax on profits or something. Right. Uh, on capital gains, on people who are making money off of owning money, like the idea, and 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 that would be that would be good because that is already taxed at a much lower rate than labor is, which is just an insane kind of thing to think about. The the reality that. You are taxed more on the sweat of your brow than your boss is on their capital gains, right. uh, uh, the, on the profits uh, from owning things. Yeah, yeah. It's just that, it's, and that's insulting. that's my concern with the Alabama Democrats is that they have found some common ground on certain tax cuts with Republicans, you know. Hey, Republicans, you love to cut taxes. How about we cut taxes for regular people? Okay, you know, fair enough. Uh, but they haven't paired that with any sort of plan to make up that revenue and to prevent austerity down the road. Uh, yeah. They are not pushing for the fit uh, plan that Arise is pushing for. Mm -hmm. Some of them are, like Senator Coleman, but, you know, I. I haven't seen Anthony Daniels write an op-ed on how we need to raise revenue, how we need to tax the wealthy in loopholes that benefit the wealthy, such as the FIT, the federal income tax deduction. Uh, we could get rid of that. And 
very few people would notice it. Only the wealthiest people would notice it. Um, what about property? Alabama has some of the lowest property taxes in the state, in particular uh, land that is classified as quote unquote timber. Mm. Uh, and so that's that's like the real one that they're never going to want to touch, because then you start looking at some of the most wealthy, powerful interest in the state, including the out of state interest who own much of this, quote unquote, timber land. Uh, you know, I, I don't get why, you know, land that across the border in Georgia is going to be taxed higher than in Alabama, the exact right. same land, the same piece of property. Right. Could span across the state line and they would pay a little bit more in tax on in Georgia. It's just uh, it's but it's one of those things that. It, it may help. It may help having these tax cuts for working people in terms of our overtime pay and in terms of our grocery bill. Uh, but there are consequences if it's not paired with any new revenue sources. Alabama already has the second lowest amount of revenue raised in the country. Only mm-hmm. Tennessee raises less in taxes, and Tennessee actually at, raises more if you factor in the lottery because mm. we don't have a lottery. We don't have casino gambling. Right. We don't have sports betting. And all those little – we don't have legal marijuana. Those are all you know sources of revenue for other states around us uh, that Alabama refuses to engage in because if Alabama raises revenue, they might – Maybe, just maybe, have to spend it to help regular people. Yeah. And, and of course, that's the biggest no-no in the state. Let's talk about some good news, even though it has some complicated details. And that is that on Monday, the Teamsters announced that 84 Amazon delivery drivers and dispatchers in Palmdale, California, the site of Amazon's DAX8 facility, had unionized. And that the Teamsters Local 396 union had reached a tentative agreement, the first of any Amazon workers in the United States. Uh, The workers are employed by Battle-Tested Strategies, one of Amazon's roughly 3,000 delivery service partners. Uh, And that employer granted voluntary union recognition after a majority of workers signed union authorization cards. Uh, We've got footage from the rally in March that happened when the workers announced their unionization from a listener of the show that was there, Will Pina. I saw him in the chat. Appreciate you sending us that. So, Adam, let's play this clip that we got. All right, here we go. Team Stars win! Team Stars win! What do we want? Contract! What do we want? Now! What do we want? Contract! What do we want? Now! Where Team Stars fight? Team Stars win! Good stuff there. Love seeing that. Um, and so now the tentative agreement is out to the members for ratification. We'll see what they say. But the union says that the contract includes immediate raises, health and safety standards, and a grievance procedure, which is all very good things. And the grievance procedure, you know, the just cause discipline and uh, um, uh, firing mechanisms are really an under-talked about uh, benefit of unionization. You know, the idea that you can go into work with confidence that, you know, as long as I do my job and I meet the standards of my contract, my boss cannot legally, um, you know, 
harass me or discipline me or do any kind, you know, as long as I do my job, I don't have to worry about anything else. I don't have to, you know, where, and that's not, not, not true when you don't have a union contract, when you don't have just cause uh, disciplinary procedures in your contract as uh, workers without a union contract do not. So that's a really good stuff. Alex Press had a great article in Jacobin that I'm leaning heavily on uh, that details some of the, dis uh, some of the complexities about this though. Um, because like I mentioned, while they deliver Amazon packages, they drive Amazon trucks, they wear Amazon uniforms, they technically do not work for Amazon. They work for Battle Tested Strategies, which is a contractor. Immediately after the announcement uh, from the Teamsters Union on Twitter, there was speculation among, you know, folks on labor Twitter, quote unquote, uh, wondering if Amazon would just kill the contract, right? Because since they're not... A, you know, these are not Amazon employees, quote unquote, they're employees of battle-tested strategies. So battle-tested strategies has a contract that comes up for renewal every so often, and Amazon could just choose to not renew the contract, theoretically. Although I'm not sure if that would be illegal, because uh, if you could prove that it was associated with unionization, I'm not sure. But, um, uh, th there were definitely some fears there, and confirming some of those fears, Amazon put out a statement later that day saying that BTS, quote, had a track record of failing to perform and had been notified of its termination for poor performance well before today's announcement. The following day, however, Alex notes, in comments to The Guardian, BTS owner Jonathan Irvin disputed Amazon claims, noting that the company's current contract doesn't expire until October 3rd and that the newly unionized drivers are currently delivering Amazon packages. So, conflicting statements from the owner of BTS and from Amazon, but that points to a the big complication in organizing Amazon's drivers, which is that many... Uh, maybe most of Amazon's drivers aren't technically Amazon employees. And so that makes unionization hard. Uh, <laughs> Alex notes that uh, David Wheel called this a fissured workplace when you have all of these subcontractors and subcontractors. Right. And so um, if Amazon fights this, I imagine that we'll see the Teamsters try to enforce a joint employer standard, um, which the Alphabet Workers Union was actually able to do with YouTube and Google, uh, which forced um, all of the parent companies to bargain with the newly unionized YouTube music workers who work for a contractor for YouTube, which is a, like, you know, uh, 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 which Google is a parent company of. So there are, uh, you know, there's some reason to be optimistic about the state support for these workers, but it is definitely, you know, there's some, uh, uh, definitely some complications there, but the best, really the best way to combat these complications would be for more of these, uh, Amazon drivers working for contractors or working for Amazon directly to unionize because the the thing that, that unions bring is the collective power of the workers and so when more of these people join unions well if you know because it would in the same way that in one workplace 
in one workplace, if one person quits, well, you know, the thing isn't, it, it, it's not really going to be that big of an impact to the organization's uh, daily operations. But if, uh, and so similarly, if uh, Amazon cancels one of their contractors' contracts, well, they'll be able to replace it. But if all of these, all of the drivers that all of these contractors unionized, well, they wouldn't be able to do that anymore because all of them would be unionized. So there would be no benefit from canceling these contracts. So that would be the advice that I have to Amazon yeah, drivers. Keep, keep it up. <laughs> keep, keep it up. So. And, you know, that makes me think about uh, the Teamsters bus drivers here in Huntsville because I think you and I probably had a similar conversation. Like, you know, now that uh, the school bus drivers in Huntsville are, are organized with the Teamsters, do you think the school board will try to cancel the contract or maybe move to a new contractor? So that's something, you know, to keep our eyes on as well. Um, and that is the danger with the subcontracting. Uh, but ultimately, like you said, the answer is unionize everywhere. Keep on organizing and unionize everywhere. That's the that's the answer. Yeah, absolutely. While we're talking about Teamsters, in addition to Will Pino, we also ha have Jose Negrete in the chat, who is a UPS driver, a 22-4, if I remember correctly, who was featured, his words, actually opened an episode of The Upsurge, which is a podcast uh, specifically dedicated to the negotiations between the Teamsters Union and UPS. Uh, so that was very exciting to hear a uh, to to hear a familiar name in that podcast. Uh, so um, yeah, absolutely, that's glad, really cool. Yeah, yeah, pretty cool. So glad to hear it. It, it was good hearing you there, uh, Negrete, and definitely recommend checking out the Upsurge. I have now listened to all six episodes. He, uh, Jose in the chat says, no, I'm a part-timer, which is different than a 22-4. Okay. So, um, but yeah, definitely would recommend listening to The Upsurge. It's a great podcast. Good stuff. So, um, with that, let's go ahead and talk about Florida. There's just so much going on in Florida. <laughs> um and so much of my information about Florida is coming from McKenna Schuler. You can follow her on Twitter at she carries on. She writes for the Orlando Weekly. Orlando Weekly. Yep. Um, and so definitely recommend following her. Her articles are always really good, always really well sourced, always talking to workers, um, which is which is nice to see. And so the first thing is about you know which is which is the most public thing, which is really kind of kind of lame that among these four stories that I'm going to be talking about, this is the most public story. This is the one that people know the most about, which is really gross. But that is uh, the DeSantis's fight with Disney. DeSantis has been fighting with Disney because uh, they're just they're just too nice to gay people is, is basically the thing. And Disney is now fighting back, saying that because the attempt to claw back the special statuses that Disney has in Florida, which exempts them from some regulations or something gives them kind of special governing authority within their jurisdiction, which is wild. <laughs> um, uh, that just seems uh, really inappropriate. But they have those. And so Disney is saying that because the attempt to claw some of those back 
is in retaliation to their political stances, which is which is true, and that's not even something that DeSantis would deny. I think DeSantis has, has been explicit that all of these attacks on Disney has been because uh, they disagree with him about some things. Um, so Disney says that because of that, because it's in retaliation of their political stances, that doing this, that these reta- this retaliation is unconstitutional and a violation of the First Amendment because they, quote, they say, quote, the company has a right to freedom of speech just like individuals do, unquote. Now, I do not agree with that. <laughs> I do not agree with that because corporations are a government-created fiction. Uh, um, created to shield individuals from liability. To be a corporation even at all, you have to ask the government's permission because corporations do not grow in nature. Corporations are societal creations. And so uh, I do not think that it is appropriate that corporations have free speech rights. Um, I think that's... uh, just a just a really really crazy kind of thing that we have allowed in this country but uh even though i don't agree with the statement that the company has freedom of speech just like individuals do the supreme court does that's what they decided in citizens united uh and you know i don't know on a constitutional level how much water their argument holds um i don't believe in corporate personhood and I reckon multi-billion-dollar international corporations ought to pay a lot of taxes. Um, and I also know that the Supreme Court has said that uh, corporations are persons, um, but I don't know that now that it is a corporation saying this on behalf of liberal social issues. I don't. I I, I kind of would tend to doubt that the Supreme Court would fall on that side, but we'll see. I guess. But what I want to highlight is how this episode shows how Republicans are not ideologically small government. They are not ideologically opposed to state power, which is something that, this is absolutely something that we have, that that, that working folks know and understand, and particularly uh, working people who fight for better working conditions and 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 better lives for themselves and their families and their communities. But uh, it's something that a lot of people like to pretend is not true. A lot of people like to pretend that Republicans are the small government party uh, and that they are, you know, live and let live. They don't like to use state power, but that's just not the case. They are willing to use state power, as we are seeing in this fight with Disney. I mean, DeSantis is really leveraging the power of the state of Florida against this corporation. But he's not doing it because of low wages. He's not doing it because of unsafe working conditions. He's not doing it because the corporation is infringing on their workers' actual constitutional rights to freedom of speech and freedom of association. He's not doing this. He's not trying to raise more taxes from Florida because they want to pay for more constituent services because they want to ensure that more people are better taken care of by the state of Florida. DeSantis, Ronald DeSantis is using state power 
because he reckons this corporation is a bit too nice to the gays. And that's just really freaking gross. That is just absolutely, because, you know, remember this the next time you hear a conversation in the media about how the government shouldn't raise the minimum wage because the government that's not the government's role. The government shouldn't be picking winners and losers when we talk about uh, subsidies for certain industries or increasing penalties for this type of behavior, this or that type of behavior. Because they're not opposed to the utilization of state power. They are only opposed to the utilization of state power when that utilization of state power benefits working people. If we're talking about using state power to raise wages, to make working conditions safer, to empower workers to fight for themselves, to make sure that tenants are not abused by their landlords... Then they're like, oh, no, you know, small government, small government, small government. We can't do this because that's, you know, that's the private sector. It's totally different. We can't do that. It's not right. We got to be in the, you got to, you got to abide by the free market. But here they're willing to do this because, uh, (laughs) because this corporation is just a bit too gay friendly. I mean, it's just really, really freaking gross. Yeah. I mean, it's, it really speaks to like that essential contradiction within the right wing in this country. And in general, but uh, at the end of the day, they they are for capital, by capital, of capital, but their social reactionary ideas sometimes butt up against capitalism. Uh, and so here's a classic case here where, you know, ordinarily DeSantis and his ilk would, you know, gladly give Disney all the tax breaks they want, the low mm-hmm. taxes and, and, you know, subsidies and anything else, uh, overlook any safety issues, turn a blind eye to any malfeasance, right? Because that's generally how they operate is, you know, they're on the behalf of corporations. Uh, but, you know, from time to time, these uh, socially reactionary kind of ideas butt up against that. And sometimes you also see sort of a you know, a bourgeoisie, petty bourgeoisie kind of conflict as well, right? Uh, and I think that's sort of what's contained within the right wing, those contradictions. And sometimes, uh, you know, like Trump was also an example of that. Some of Trump's policies were not preferred by other elements of the capitalist class. The capitalist class is not fully united. Uh, they're united in uh, trying to make lives worse for working people, of course, but how that plays out can can differ. Um, and there are different factions within the capitalist class. Um, and, you know, there's a certain strain of, of reactionary politics in this country that is willing to butt up against the interest of capital from time to time. But as you said, not to help people, but to further divide people. And it seems to me that the right wing in this country has really seized on trans folks as as like the new punching bag. You know, in the 2000s, it was the gays. Uh, You know, of course, immigrants have always been a punching bag of the right. But, uh, you know, they have over time, they have swapped enemies. Um, 
You know, so in the 2000s, it was the gays and the Muslims that we were supposed to be scared of, that we were supposed to, um, you know, allow the government to discriminate against. Uh, now it's trans folks, uh, because we're talking about, what, 1%, 2% of the population, a very small amount of people that they can easily bully right. and rile people up uh, in right. opposition to. Uh, they can cater to some of the worst elements of our society and some of the worst ideas of our society and just cater to bigotry uh, to, to try to get votes. And it's really sickening, just sickening. Uh, you know, at no point would I ever be inclined to defend a, a mega corporation like Disney. But yeah, it's like yeah, no, two bad I, guys I, fighting each other for, for sure. bad reasons. I mean, for it's sure. just bad. Yeah, bad guys fighting for bad reasons, and I hope they both lose right. uh, in some way. I hope that I, I hope that, I mean, my, my uh, whatever the process is, I think it would be a good outcome for Disney to lose these special ta uh, statuses and to be governed more by the people of Florida. And I think that, you know, the idea that, uh, that that commission that's supposed to govern Disney or something, Disney World, uh, the idea that they were able to circumvent the, you know, that is is funny, but also like not good for, you know, society <laughs> that a corporation could have potentially just like been like, nah, you know, we don't want to do this, what the government says. So, you know, uh, my ideally uh, what would happen is that uh, they lose their special status, they pay more taxes but also somehow they're able to politically weaken DeSantis and I don't know, like make him cry and become irrelevant or something. I don't know. So we'll see what happens. We're probably not going to update you anymore, but <laughs> on that story, but it is, you know, it, it is, it is, um, what's the word archetypal. It is archetypal of the, uh, you know, of the reactionary right. Right. And, and their willingness to fight, uh, uh, fight corporations, but not actually for workers or good right. They they occasionally will fight them, but for for the wrong reasons. And yeah. um, you know, we see that with Alabama a lot of times, where folks will say, "Oh, you know, Alabama is so backwards that it's actually hurting our ability to recruit businesses." Hmm. Uh, that yeah. there are some corporations who are you know hesitant to come to a state that is so socially reactionary that uh, embraces bigotry as public policy. And, uh, you know, so that's something that, you know, Alabama Republicans have to debate amongst themselves. Like, OK, we really we want to do the bigotry, but we want the profit making, too. Right. So which one's going to win out? You know, uh, in other Florida news, an anti-union bill just passed the House. It passed the Senate earlier this month, so it's headed to DeSantis's desk for his signature. In all likelihood, he is going to sign it. And it is a huge attack on uh, frontline workers in Florida. Um, public educators, school counselors, municipal workers, public health care workers, and a whole host of other frontline workers that McKenna Schuler notes in our article were lauded as heroes during the COVID-19 pandemic. But now, these 150,000 working Floridians uh, and their unions have new requirements that are going to be imposed on them by the state. Um, <laughs> although, unions representing cops, firefighters, corrections, and probation officers would be exempted from its provisions, having been categorized by the Republican bill sponsors as 
uh, belonging to a special risk category, um, which is absolutely BS. We know that's BS. They just like cops and they don't like teachers. That's the thing. Um, that's all it does. Because, and you know, McKenna says in, in, in one of her tweets about this, that, you know, the bill's sponsors, their assertions are that this will actually help unions. This is going to help unions. Despite that, not a single union member came out in, in support of this bill during public testimony or to thank the bill's sponsors for bringing it forward. But the sponsors still assert that this is going to be helpful for unions. But then, if it's going to be helpful for unions, why don't you impose this on the cops? That's super exactly. weird. It's super weird if you think this is actually going to be helpful for the teachers and their organizations. Why would you not impose that on the cops? Do you hate cops? Is that what you want me to believe? No, of course not. Of course not. This is a bill specifically meant to attack uh, teachers and uh, public health care workers, municipal workers, anybody in the state of Florida who has the gall to fight for themselves and their families and their fellow workers. Um, so what the bill would do is ban payroll deduction of union dues for public sector union members who, remember, already have to willingly sign up to pay dues in the first place. Florida is a right-to-rec uh, right state, right-to-work, meaning that you don't have to pay union dues. The, the state forces the employer and the union to not have uh, fees for the union in their contracts. In other states... The government stays out of this decision and allows in the private sector, the workers and management to decide whether or not they want to have this in their contract. But in Florida, the state comes in again, utilizing state power here and says, no, it is illegal for you to have this in your contract. And so workers have to on their own individually say, I want to pay dues to the union. And so this says that, no, uh, you can't have dues deduction on your paychecks. Right. And also we should note that there are other do there are there are deductions that happen on paychecks of teachers and other public sector workers beyond union dues. Okay? Right. Uh, there are other forms of deductions whether it's supplemental insurance products that they buy. Right. right. They buy a disability insurance policy from central office and that's taken out of their paycheck or maybe they donate to the United Way with every paycheck. Right. Uh, you know, I don't know all the specifics in Florida and exactly what deductions are currently allowed, but I feel very certain from working in and around this kind of system here in Alabama that deductions to the AFT and the NEA are not the only deductions that are happening. Right. And so it's not as if this is like a special uh, – there's not a, a ton of state resources that are being drained mm -hmm. by doing this. It's right. It's a spreadsheet. And right. someone clicks a few buttons and sends the file every month. It's, um, yeah, it's, it, there is no good reason to do this unless you are attempting to hurt the unions and hurt their membership. And the reason why that works is because dues deduction through your paycheck is simply easier for right. the members. Yeah. And 
the alternative of members having to pay with their credit card or through uh, draft out of their checking account, of course they can do that, but it's more difficult because right. people's cards <clears throat> expire, people move, people change banks. Right. All these different things happen. And I experienced that firsthand in Alabama with the Alabama Education Association because there was a very similar attack on AEA and their dues deduction. And, uh, you know, I saw the transition from one to the other. Mm-hmm. It's definitely an attack on membership. Absolutely. Interestingly, during the public comment section, Chris Payne, a Republican teacher, a Republican educator of 32 years and a former soldier, soldier, <laughs> a former soldier from Nassau County, told lawmakers during one of the bill's committee stops, quote, don't tell me how to handle my paycheck. It's not big enough anyway, so don't tell me what to do with it. Which is, you know, which is reasonable, right? If I want dues deducted from my paycheck, then let me freaking do it. It's my money. But uh, the Florida government is saying, no, we're going to tell you how you can use your paycheck and you can't have dues deduction. Uh, Some of the other things that it will do is impose annual auditing requirements, and it would also require public employee unions to reach or maintain a 60% membership rate among eligible employees or risk facing decertification and consequently the loss of a union contract. Which is just totally arbitrary and will unnecessarily hurt people. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um the uh uh <laughs> the now the decertification wouldn't happen automatically it would be uh the it would trigger a recertification vote is uh what mckenna says in her article um which is better than automatic decertification but it's still really really uh you know it's super arbitrary and and one of the questions would be typically the thing is a majority if a majority of employees want to, uh, you know, be members of their unions, then, you know, then that's what it takes to get a union in. That's what it takes to get a union out. Why wouldn't you just say a majority? And well, McKenna has some reporting on that, showing that of the 15 largest teachers unions, all of them have membership over 50 percent, but only three of them have membership over 60 percent. And the teachers' unions also say that uh, DeSantis' aide was calling around all the teachers' unions, asking them their um, what their membership percentages was. And so it's just a blatant attack on these unions, uh, on their ability to, you know, utilize their resources in uh, the most effective ways possible, because this is going to mean having to devote resources to elections um, every other year or every year uh, if you're not able to maintain over 60% membership. And it's just going to waste resources that could be going towards uh, research or organizing or representing members. And instead, you're having to win an election all the time. It's just, I mean... 
Yeah. And and then, but if you lose the election, it, that is uh, that was triggered not because not because workers were agitated and wanted to get rid of their union, but because the government triggered an election because the membership fell below the arbitrary threshold of 60%, then you use, you lose the union contract automatically. Automatically. You don't even have it until the expiration date. You lose it automatically. And that includes scheduled raises, health benefits, retirement savings plans, scheduling. All of that goes out the door if the union loses the election and then you're totally at the whim of your boss. Bad stuff going on in Florida. Here's another one. Republicans now want to prevent local governments from requiring companies they contract with pay their employees a living wage that exceeds Florida's current minimum wage. So this is not a, since 2003, Florida already had a law that prohibited governments, local governments from passing ordinance that would require private employers to pay wages higher than the state minimum wage, right? So you can't, uh, as of 2003, you know, a local government couldn't say, okay, within our city limits, everybody has to pay higher than the state minimum wage. Since 2003, that's been illegal. But now they want to come in and say, okay, local government, not only can you not do that, you can't even have standards for your contractors. Which is crazy. How are you going to come in and tell a government that you can't have standards when it comes to safety when it comes to wages, when it comes to benefits and scheduling and all this kind of stuff. That is super material to the execution of the contract that is in the best interest for the constituents to have a body that is able to set these standards when it comes to these contracts. And so the state government is just coming in and saying, nope, can't do that. I mean, just really uh, crazy stuff here. And what is the purpose of this? What is the purpose of this? Because it's not like the constituents in these areas are agitated about this. There's no popular upsurge in city, the city of Orlando or the city of Tampa or the city of Miami where they have some of these ordinances saying, you know, we want to make sure that our city contractors have the ability to pay their workers as little as possible. That's just simply not happening in these cities. Because if it was, then they would be electing city councilors to repeal this ordinance. All it is, is Republicans from outside of these areas trying to benefit corporations that contract with these cities that maybe some of these contractors donate to these Republicans campaigns in other parts of the state. And so they want to make their, you know, they want to make their buddies whole. They want to make sure that their buddies have a, uh, uh, are able to spend less money on workers when they work for the city of Miami or the city of Orlando. It is, it is simply not to make working people's lives better. But here again, 
They're willing to use state power. They're willing to use state power. And this isn't even for a socially reactionary, uh, 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 a socially reactionary thing. This is just nakedly anti-worker. Here's the last thing about Florida. On Wednesday, the Republican-dominated House, and all of this, I'm getting all of this reporting from McKenna Schuler. Really great. You can follow her at She Carries On on Twitter. Uh, you can read her writing in the Orlando Weekly. So on Wednesday, the Republican-dominated Florida House passed a bill, 81 to 33, that would wipe out local government's renters' protections across Florida, preempting to the state all local policies that affect landlord-tenant relations, including tenant protections implemented in Central Florida. 46 ordinances in 35 cities and counties would be affected by the bill. That includes Orange County's Tenant Bill of Rights and its fair notice requirements. The Tenant Bill of Rights contains anti-discrimination protections that aren't currently guaranteed under state law. Anti-discrimination policies. That's what the Republicans in Florida are trying to get rid of. Another one is uh, Orange County's ordinance protects tenants against source of income discrimination. Not against income discrimination, because that's like a big thing, right? <laughs> you know, that's not totally unreasonable that if you, you know, you're a, a landlord and your the rent is $3,000 a month, you wouldn't want somebody making only $2,000 a month to rent that apartment. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about source of income discrimination. What is your job occupation? You can't, um, you can't discriminate based on that. It, and that is an issue that largely affects renters of color, women, people with disabilities. The ordinance also offers protection against discrimination on the basis of actual per or perceived status as a victim of domestic violence, dating violence, or stalking. I mean, just imagine this. Republicans in the state of Florida are saying, no, renters should not be protected from landlords from discrimination on the basis of being a victim of domestic violence. Just the cruelty. I, I can't think of any other reason than the cruelty is the point. Right? Because these are things that people in blue areas, by and large, have been able to force their governments to pass to by some modicum, by some modest measure, protect their living standards, increase their uh, quality of life, increase their freedom from their landlord, from their bosses. And the Republicans are coming in here and saying, no, we are firmly on the side of capital and we want your life to be worse if you're not a capitalist. Just gross stuff here. <clears throat> um, next thing we wanted to talk about is this, uh, um, the default. 
defaulting on our debt uh, for the United States. And Adam, you had some stuff you wanted to say about that, right? Yeah, give me just a second here. Let me get that pulled up. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, as a as a preview to kind of open this up, the the there is a there's a big debate in the you know in the United States House about the debt limit, the debt limit, and so there's this crazy. There's just this really bizarre thing that says, okay, even though, you know, there are actually even questions as to its constitutionality, because even though Congress has required the government to expend this certain amount of money by passing appropriations laws, there is this second thing, that's the debt limit, that says, oh, no, actually, you can't do this. You can't go above, you can't borrow more than this amount of money. Yeah, and the debt limit is not, like, enshrined in the Constitution or anything by, you know, anything to that effect. Right. Uh, it could easily be done away with. They right. could have eliminated the debt limit already. They could still do so, obviously, not with the makeup of the Congress right now, uh, at least not likely to happen, but... Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and so you've got the House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has a plan of austerity and is demanding significant cuts to social services and work requirements to social services uh, in exchange basically for, you know, basically they're holding the, the country hostage uh, and saying you're going to pass this austerity or we're going to let the country default. Uh, so I did want to just highlight the AFL-CIO statement on the matter. Uh, and they put this out just this week. And uh, ahead of today's vote in the U.S. House on the Limit, Save, Grow Act of 2023 proposed by Republican leaders, the AFL-CIO, America's largest labor federation representing more than 12.5 million working people, strongly urged Congress to reject House Speaker Kevin McCarthy's plan to careen our nation into default, which would tank the economy and put millions of workers at risk. In a letter to Congress, the Federation calls out the bill for posing an imminent threat to the retirement security of hundreds of thousands of Americans, cutting life-supporting benefits and programs for veterans, seniors, children, and low-income families. This misguided legislation will also harm our economy by slashing vital federal investments in clean energy and new technologies that will expand domestic manufacturing and put millions of people to work. Uh, here is an excerpt from that letter they sent to Congress. Quote, by clawing back unused COVID-19 relief funds, the McCarthy plan would slash funding for veterans' medical care, vaccines, personal protective equipment, and public transit agencies. It could also jeopardize the unspent funds in the multi-employer pension rescue plan, the Butch Lewis Act that was included in the American Rescue Plan Act. Destroying the retirement income security of more than one million hardworking Americans is an outrageous and unacceptable price for a debt deal. The McCarthy plan also would dim hopes of transitioning into a cleaner energy economy and rebuilding our manufacturing base around clean energy jobs. The United States is in a position to become a dominant producer of high-tech goods, from wind turbines to solar to electric vehicles. Rescinding the Inflation Reduction Act's clean energy tax credits would cede the clean energy future to China and raise taxes on our businesses that are trying to remain globally competitive while combating climate change. 
The cuts in the McCarthy plan would fall disproportionately on the backs of federal workers and undermine the ability of government agencies to fulfill their mission to serve the American people. So, interesting statement there. AFL-CIO is certainly opposed to this uh, plan by House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. I, I would imagine most of the unions are as well. Um, I, I thought it was interesting that they they made it a point to mention China in the mm. letter. I <clears throat> I think that's probably them trying to you know triangulate a little bit and and speak to some of the congressmen on a level that they understand uh, because if there's anything that Congress seems to like right now it's bashing China right uh, so I imagine that was probably the thinking and, and throwing that little dig in there yeah weird stuff for sure so we'll see what happens um, uh, you know I, I I do I just have a hard time believing that the Republicans are, are gonna be able to go through with this because the idea that they would be willing to send the nation the nation into default for the first time in order to take more money from poor people is just difficult to grok it seems to me um because it would be obvious that you know it would be their fault right um and it, it's just difficult for me to 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 buy that that would go over well in the general public, but you know, yeah, it may not go over well, but that doesn't necessarily mean they won't do it. Uh, and at this point, nothing would surprise me, you know, so I I haven't been following the, you know, the blow by blow in DC, uh, very closely. I've been kind of waiting to see, you know, as we get closer and how things are going to shake out, but yeah, I, I agree. I mean, it does seem hard to imagine that the Republicans would do that, uh, because you know, they're, all, what because they want to make people uh, meet certain hoop jump through hoops and meet mm-hmm. work requirements to get health care or food right. stamps <clears throat> but you know again it would not surprise me if they did go down that road uh, and who knows there could be p- political calculations as well maybe they think well if we do it under a democratic president the democratic president will get the blame right it, it's you know which is that's also you know very cynical uh but again, I assume that they are cynical in the way they operate. Right. Uh, let's go back to some good news. Uh, there's a Sega union uh, for a general overview. We're going to cut to our friends from Means Morning News. Turning now to unionization efforts at a brand that all gamers are familiar with, Sega. Remember a few weeks ago, TikTok user the Swoletariat posted a video featuring Sonic the Hedgehog giving tips on how to unionize the workplace. Union that fits your needs. Share the info with your coworkers. Sign those union cards. When you've got enough support, file a petition with the National Labor Relations Board. Win the election and negotiate a contract. Together, you'll make your workplace better and fairer for everyone. Gotta unionize fast. Well, now the creators of Sonic are taking the advice to heart. Workers at Sega's American headquarters in California announced that they had formed a union with the Communication Workers of America. 144 of the roughly 170 employees at the company already agreed to join the union. So even if Sega refuses to recognize it, a National Labor Relations Board election victory is all but assured. The workers are calling the union. Allied Employees Guild Improving Sega, or Aegis, 
and they're seeking better pay and benefits, more opportunities for remote work, and better staffing to avoid crunch scenarios. That's when developers have to work long hours in the run-up to a game's release. And the bargaining unit would stretch across Sega's corporate operations. It includes not just the game developers, but also the marketing, quality assurance, and design departments. It would be the first interdepartmental video game union in the industry. So that's something to get excited about. No word yet on if Tails has signed a union card or if Dr. Robotnik will seek the help of union-busting legal services. Great to hear that good news. And, uh, you know, we've seen a trend of more and more workers in the video game industry are interested in unionizing uh, for some of the reasons Sam just explained, the crunch time, the working conditions, uh, pay, of course, uh, input in the job, all the reasons why folks join unions and create unions. And it's really good to see that starting to spread into this really important industry. You know, video games are a huge business. And, um, you know, like any industry, we need union labor in that industry. And so love to see that with Sega. Uh, I don't know about you, Jacob, but definitely played plenty of Sega growing up. Uh, Sega Genesis, Sega Dreamcast. How about the Sega Dreamcast, Oof. folks? Y'all remember yeah. that one? I remember the uh, 56, what is it? Was it 56K internet? Dial-up internet. You know, I remember the dial-up yeah. internet and, you know, plugging the phone line into the back of the Dreamcast. And, you know, nobody. we had to just pray that no one would call the house mm. when we were trying to play online. Um, so, yeah, got some good memories from Sega for sure. And it's really, really just cool to see unionization spreading into Sega. And uh, I hope it, it spreads because... You know, from the reporting we've seen, especially over the last year or two, there's definitely a lot of issues inside the video game industry, and unionization is one of the key ways that they can make that industry a better place to work. Yeah, absolutely. And the and and and, and the video game industry pulls something that in a, in a bit of a different way that like nonprofit and service centered workplaces do you know like when teachers are asking for more or when nurses are asking for more uh the employers always try to they always try to pit you know um they try to pit the patients or the students against the teachers uh when in reality you know they have very similar interests uh and uh, and, and they're also told, you know, uh, this is a calling. You're not supposed to be in right. this for the money, right? And so the video game industry really does a similar thing where they're like, oh, you know, it's everybody's dream to right. play video games. You love video, video games. games, don't you? Yeah. You love the video you, games. You, you get to make right. them. How lucky you are. How lucky you are while you're working 80-hour weeks mm -hmm. uh, in the run-up to, run to a game's release, and then we're immediately going to lay you off for a few months after that. Um, yeah. Yeah, they really take advantage of folks, and uh, it's good to see people fighting back. Absolutely. Um, so, uh, Adam, have you uh, have you got a clip of this uh, uh, musical that's going to be in uh, in Montgomery? You know what? I did not get the clip pulled uh, to show this week. Uh, okay. I think what we'll do is we'll show that next week and. Uh, hoping to speak to Ryan Thornhill, the director of the musical, but uh, I did want to 
you know, remind folks that there is this festival going on down in the Montgomery Prattville area. It's called the Alabama International Fringe, uh, Fringe Festival. And it's a three-day event taking place on May 12th, 13th, and 14th in, uh, you know, the River Region, centered in Montgomery. Uh, and that includes a performance of Toll Puddle, the musical, which is a musical about union struggles in 1800s England, uh, which I find really interesting. I'm not a big musical guy, but when I found out there was a union-themed musical and it was happening here in Alabama, that was definitely exciting. Uh, <clears throat> so hoping to speak to the director of the musical next week and we'll play a little clip for you so you can have an idea. But if you're in the area, uh, if you're you know pretty close to Montgomery, Prattville area, definitely check it out in a couple weeks. Um, I hope it's very successful. Yeah, yeah, looking forward to hearing more about that, even though I won't be able to attend. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so Adam, talk to us about uh, what you're watching and listening to this month. So last month, I didn't do a labor film and song of the month. Uh, I know, uh, my apologies. I'm so sorry, I did not get to it. And uh, of course, March is Women's History Month, and that was sort of on my mind as I made the picks for this month. So for <clears throat> for April's labor film of the month, I'm highlighting one of my favorite movies, not just about labor, but in general. <clears throat> in an Oscar-winning performance, Sally Field is unforgettable as Norma Ray, the Southern mill worker who revolution revolutionizes a small town and discovers a power in herself she never knew she had. Under the guidance of a New York unionizer, Ron Liebman, or played by Ron Liebman, and with increasing courage and determination, Norma Ray organizes her fellow factory workers to fight for better conditions and wages. Based on a true story, Norma Ray is the mesmerizing tale of a modern-day hero. Uh, all of the actors do a great job. Uh, Bo Bridges is also one of the co-stars, you know, the brother of Jeff Bridges, the dude. And uh, he plays Norma's co-worker turned love interest. And there's just so much to love about the movie Norma Ray. I love that it's set in the South. Um, and so much of like a union campaign is is addressed in the movie, right? The the early parts of the campaign, the initial meetings, uh, you know, the organizer coming in and, and kind of finding those natural leaders in the workplace. Uh, and race, particularly with it being in the South, race is a factor here. And you see that explored in the film in the ways in which uh, racism and union busting are often hand in hand. And so I just I really can't recommend it enough. To me, it's just uh, an all-time classic labor movie. And if you've never seen Norma Ray, uh, it is worth looking up. Last I recall, it was available on some of the free streaming apps. So, you know, if you got a Roku or something like that, just search for Norma Ray. See if you can find it. Um, it's, you know, a little bit older film, but it's it's really a great one. It's timeless. It's still, it still hits hard. Uh I, I really loved it. I love that uh, you had a strong woman as the leader. And, uh, you know, at the very end, 
Uh, if you're not moved by it, I just don't know what what, what, what will move you. Um, so Norma Ray, highly recommend. That's my April labor film of the month. Jacob, have you seen Norma Ray? I have not. Oh my God, <laughs> you haven't seen Norma Ray. See, that's why I had to make it the film of the month this month, so that uh, all of you know about how great Norma Ray is. So check that movie out. And uh, for my song of the month, the April Labor Song of the Month, I'm going to go with an all-time classic called Union Made. And that's Union Made, M-A-I-D. And it's been done by legends like Woody Guthrie and Pete Seeger. Personally, I'm a big fan of the contemporary spin on the song by Old Crow Medicine Show. Not... I like Old Crow Medicine Show. They're not, you know, my favorite band or anything like that, but they have done a really great version of it. So if, you know, if you're interested, check that out. I would love to play it for you, but I don't want our video taken down by YouTube. Uh, so Union Made is a union song with lyrics written by Woody Guthrie in response to a request for a union song from a female point of view. Along with Talking Union, this song was one of the many pro-union songs uh, written by Guthrie during his time as, the mem as a member of the Almanac Singers. Uh, and, of course, Pete Seeger was another member of the Almanac Singers, and he wrote about Union Made, quote, I'm proud to say I was present when Union Made was written in June 1940 in the plain little office of the Oklahoma City Communist Party. Bob Wood, local organizer, had asked Woody Guthrie and me to sing there the night before for a small group of striking oil workers. Early next morning, Woody got to the typewriter and hammered out the first two verses of Union Made, set to a European tune that Robert Schumann arranged for piano, called The Merry Farmer, back in the early 1800s. Of course, it's the chorus that really makes it. Its tune, Red Wing, was copyrighted early in the 1900s. So some of the lyrics... Um, talks about a union maid who was never afraid. She's not afraid of the company goons or the deputy sheriffs. When there's a meeting at the union hall, she shows up and she stands her ground. Uh, the chorus, of course, is, you can't scare me, I'm sticking to the union. I love that one. And, you know, also in the lyrics... Uh, the union maid was wise to the tricks of company spies. She couldn't be fooled by a company stool. She'd always organized the guys. She always got her way when she struck for better pay. She'd show her card to the National Guard, and this is what she'd say. You can't scare me. I'm sticking to the union. So, uh, and of course it closes by saying, uh, Get you a man who's a union man and join the ladies' auxiliary. Married life ain't hard when you got a union card. Union man is a happy life. A union man has a happy life when he's got a union wife. So I'll dedicate this one to my union wife, Miss Maggie, uh, and shout out to your union fiance, Ryan. So uh, got some great union maids in our movement. Um, it's a great song. Love the song. Check out the original Woody and Pete version. Also check out the Old Crow Medicine Show version. So those are my April song and film picks of the month, Union Made and Norma Ray. Check them out. That's going to be it for us, right, Adam? 
Well, uh, actually, I do have. Uh, do, oh yeah. Do we have anything else? Let's see. Um, I wanted to go back here. Let me double check our ending plugs just to make sure there's nothing else we need to shout out. Um, worth noting that Labor Notes, of course, has more training on the way, as they always do. I always want to lift up our friends at Labor Notes for the good work they're doing. Uh, so if you're looking to get more involved, check that out. Uh, in May, they do have the three-part Secrets of a Successful Organizer series, as well as their workshop on what to do when your union breaks your heart. Um, and I just came across they will have a another stewards training sometime <laughs> later in May. I can't remember exactly which one this one is. Uh, I think assertive grievance handling was in April. So we'll, we'll stay tuned to the May uh, edition of, of the Stewards Workshop. And uh, also don't forget our new weekly series called Shop Talk, which is on Thursday mornings. Shop Talk is dedicated to labor education, history, and training. You can check out the live stream on Thursday mornings on Facebook or YouTube, or of course, check out the podcast a couple days later. Uh, this week, I did a session on learning the legislature. So we talked a little bit about some uh, some bad bills and some good bills today in the Alabama legislature. And this past week's shop talk was all about understanding the legislative process. And I had on Tara Bailey from the Alabama Channel, and she did a great demonstration of the Alabama Channel and what that is and, and how you can follow your legislators. So especially those of you who are in Alabama, I really recommend you check that out. Uh, it could be a useful resource, especially if you are if you are a committee chair, if you are the political coordinator or some kind of role like that in your union, if you're a steward, whatever the situation may be, uh, it may be worth uh, sharing with some of your members to better understand the legislative process. And uh, got some great stuff planned for Shop Talk this month, including a special Labor Notes featured episode which we will, we will begin starting next month. We'll have a featured episode from Labor Notes. Already recorded our main interview for that one. It was a really good interview. Um, so y'all stay tuned to the exciting stuff we have for Shop Talk. All right. With that, we'll go ahead and head out. Appreciate everybody's time. Uh, and Adam, we'll see you on Thursday morning. I'll see you next week. Bye, y'all.